Welcome to Surfcast. Thank you for joining me. My guest today is Dr. David Qualiana. Now, you might remember last week, if you listened to our episode with his wife, Heather, I said Quagliana. There's a big debate on whether or not that G should or should not be silent. There's a lot more stuff that happens when Dave and I get together and have a conversation because we agree to disagree. Now, however, I think we both agree on this topic we're going to be talking about today, and it's the unfortunate reality of suicide. Stick around, and you're going to find out a way in which you can help somebody else who probably needs you today. We'll be right back. David, welcome to Servecast, man. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, G, whether or not it's silent, because that's <laughs> the, the least of the concerns that we have, you know. But we, we share some uh, some good memories together. You're in your 13th year at Lee University, is that correct? That's right. That's right. Now, your official title is the Director and Clinical Coordinator and Psychologist for the Counseling Center here at Lee. Yeah. That's, right. that, that's a lot of stuff, man. <laughs> but your real claim to fame is you are Heather's husband, and uh, she oh, was yeah. she was on Surfcast the other day, and we talked about some of the challenges. And today, I think we're going to dig in a little bit deeper on this unfortunate reality of suicide. Yeah, I'm really good at following and kind of riding my wife's coattails, uh, but I do have some <laughs> things of my own to say every once in a while. So, hey, she's yeah, a TV star, though. You know, so, so yeah, she was yeah. In, the, in the big news, and and the kids, man, just just wonderful little kids. It's just a man. You guys are life is changing rapidly, huh? Oh yeah, everybody grows up. Time's flying. I can't imagine like 13 years at Lee, a whole bunch of different roles and stuff like that. But I've been at the counseling center in pretty much the same job the whole time. Still loving it. So. Yeah, you know, I've been in the Leonard Center since it started. And so I think that's a, a lot of ways I think it's a win. Some people may think that it might be a curse to have to stay the same place for that long, but I don't hate it, man. <laughs> I like it. It's a lot of fun. So, David, we've enjoyed um, friendship for many years. And, you know, you've been, you and Heather have been very involved over the years in working internationally, working in disaster zones. Uh, tornadoes of 2011, you'll remember you and I went to a local corporation here and did a, uh, uh, what'd you call that? Just kind of like a debriefing session with some debriefing, people. Debriefing, crisis intervention. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. All the stuff that you know that I don't really know all the terminology for that. I just call it showing up and shutting up. You know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, well, and that, that's not a bad way to think about it. So, yeah, I mean, go. just to be there to join people in whatever it is that they're going through. And uh, sometimes we lead, uh, a lot of times we listen. Yeah. So. Yeah. David, talk to us a little bit about this whole idea of suicide. Now, we know there are three frames, general frames, I think, suicide, suicide ideation, and suicide mm -hmm. attempt. So when yeah. the professionals are talking about this, those mm -hmm. are the three general frames. But, yeah. but you know, we're in, we're in 2020, man. It has been a whirlwind. So talk to us kind of a general overview of why this subject is important, and then um, we'll unpack a little bit on you know, what someone might be, how, how someone might be impacted or affected by the, the realities of life and all of that. So Sure. Um, well, it's interesting. Uh, suicide is treated differently than a lot of other things in my field. And I'm sure this makes logical sense to everybody, but it, it is different from a lot of the other things that we deal with, whether it's trauma, depression, anxiety, those kinds of things. Um, when I sit down with my clients uh, and, and we set a foundational expectation, uh, I find an appropriate way to tell them, I really only have two expectations of you. One, don't quit therapy. The other, 
don't commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is anything else we can deal with together. Mm. But with those two things, we lose that connection, that relationship. And suicide is, is a permanent thing, whereas other things, there, there are ways to attempt to come back from them. And so legally and ethically, we treat suicide differently, and we have the, the right to consult others in order to bring people in uh, and keep them safe. Uh, so there's a definite value system around suicidality because we value the lives uh, mm-hmm. of the people that we're working with. And and because I think that when a person is dealing with suicidality, there is something going on in their outlook on their life that I really do want to bring about some impact and change. Mm-hmm. I, I think when people are suicidal, I want to try to understand why they are suicidal okay. because there's some sort of adjustment that we need to make there. I really don't think that the person is seeing things accurately or completely enough if they have really drawn a conclusion that suicide is the answer to the pain or the problems that they're Mm -hmm. dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, unfortunately, it is a relatively prevalent way of death. It's relatively prevalent uh, experience amongst those uh, that that we deal with at the counseling center. I, I think you have made some distinctions that are important there too. Just because a person has some sort of thoughts about death or suicide doesn't mean they're they're necessarily in the same position as someone who has those thoughts and also a plan means intent and, and they're taking action on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we talk about suicidal ideation or suicide thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people have had those. Sometimes they're pretty passive thoughts. Uh, I wish I wouldn't wake up in the morning, something like that. Yeah. Uh, other times it's relatively active thoughts. The way they're thinking about it is a plan that would involve them taking action to end their life. Mm-hmm. Um, then there is more suicide risk as people have more planning worked out. They have more intent to act on it, that yeah. kind of thing. And, and one of the factors in whether someone is going to complete suicide or not is uh, whether in their family or in their own personal history, there are attempt history or, uh, or completed suicides within their family. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the risk factors that try to Tell us how likely a person is to take that action that is not a retrievable uh, action. Sure. You know, um, as a chaplain with the county, uh, with the county where I live at, you know, I'm a chaplain with our fire department, emergency services, EMS, sheriff's department. And unfortunately, you know, when um, a suicide occurs, then, um, you know, they typically will bring a chaplain out to be with the family. And and I've noticed that on occasions, maybe this is just an absolute observation. I don't know. Maybe you could speak to it for just a minute. Um, it seems like sometimes when you get a suicide, you may get multiples in the same week, you know, um, and you may get multiples in the same area that are not necessarily connected. You know, um, yeah. what 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 does that need to what does that need to say to us today about being observant and caring for our neighbors? Yeah. Well, I, I think. Yeah, sometimes we've heard that phrase, like suicides come in threes. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's not anything, anything superstitious or, or truly accurate that suicides come in threes. But at the same time, um, there can be people within a community uh, or uh, who, who have had suicidal thoughts and various levels of consideration of whether they might actually take action. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for a lot of people, there's a relatively big gulf in between I'm having thoughts about it and it is a reality, a real possibility for me. Mm-hmm. And I think when people hear about a suicide that has actually occurred, it, it kind of 
destroys or weakens some of the boundary between suicidal thoughts and the possibility of real suicidal action. Um, and so I think if they find out that someone in their community, someone that they can relate to in one way or the other, has made that transition from mm. thinking about it to a suicide attempt or to completing suicide, it, it does sometimes make it more real for the person who's just having suicidal thoughts. There were actually some discussions and debate uh, around even media coverage of suicides or certain TV shows like 13 Reasons mm. Why and things like that, whether they were increasing the likelihood that someone was going to attempt or complete suicide because they were making that philosophical concept of right. ending their life more of a reality or a possibility. Mm-hmm. So. David, is there a particular uh, age, gr- age group or demographic of people that this usually impacts more than um, the general population? Uh, yes and no. Uh, there's some pretty complex variables and factors in that. Um, it is a, a more common cause of death for people in their late teenage years and into college and and young adulthood. That statistic is a little bit uh, misleading sometimes, though, because there are a lot of other causes of death that are more prevalent in older people that aren't prevalent Mm -hmm. in children, like heart conditions and Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, But they're not the only group uh, that has that kind of increased potential or risk uh, of suicide death. Um, There's actually a relatively larger spike of risk for suicide attempt or suicide completion amongst the elderly as Mm -hmm. well. Um, And then if if you're looking outside of age, uh, gender uh, makes a big difference. Women... Uh, females in general, uh, females are going to have more suicide attempts than males do. Uh, males have a much higher percentage and therefore a higher number of completion uh, of suicide. Okay. Um, and s- to some extent, that's driven by the means by which people consider suicide. Men tend to be considering more clearly and reliably lethal means Mm -hmm. of attempt. Um, And then, so we've talked about gender and age, and I think there can be plenty of other circumstances that can be related, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether there's mental health history in the family, especially with depression, suicide attempts uh, in the family, those kinds of things. Uh, And then there, there is a subcategory of males, especially around our age, middle age, uh, who... They have some sort of environmental circumstances that happen. They go through a divorce or a mm-hmm. loss of a job or something along those lines, and uh, there, there's an increased spike uh, risk of suicidality mm-hmm. uh, when some aspect of life seems to fall apart uh, for middle-aged men as mm-hmm. well. I really like the, the. I don't like any of this because it's very, um, very dark in a lot of ways and very difficult and unfortunate. But I, I like the clarification of terminology that you're you're using because. You know, it's uh, common on the street to hear the, 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 the idea that this was a successful suicide. Mm-hmm. But no suicide, in my mind, is considered to be successful. Completed? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that person did take their life. But, but speak to that in, in kind of a general culture way. How can people who have not been trained in the, the field that you're in, you know, they don't have the experience and the training in the field of chaplaincy that I'm involved in, but yet, you know, we're, we're living in, man, right now with... The pandemic and you know um, natural disasters still occurring, you know one right behind the other. Talk to us from a general perspective, Dave, on people that uh, maybe you're watching this, you know, or you're listening to our episode, and and you think you know maybe there's somebody down around my neighborhood. They just they seem a little off, you know. What sure. what 
talk about the whole cultural concept and, and what does it look like for us? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of different things we could address in there. Okay. Um, on the terminology side, uh, I, I would agree with you. I've been intentional in using the language complete suicide because right. that is technically what has occurred, uh, whereas that whole successful suicide uh, can have some value language in it mm-hmm. that, that we're trying to avoid. Um, th- there's a couple other things like that that I try to dispel or point people towards certain language or, or certain perspectives as well. Um, w- one thing is there is a significant difference uh, between suicidal thoughts and behaviors and okay. Self-injury that is not intended to be suicidal. Uh, we call it NSSI or non-suicidal self-injury. So cutting um, could be a yeah. So of that. cutting, scraping, burning, things like that. I, I think it's important to not conflate that together and assume that that is a suicidal gesture. Okay. Um, there are times uh, when it is tied in together with suicide, uh, but non-suicidal self-injury tends to be just that, not necessarily connected with suicidal thoughts or intent at all, mm-hmm. but it's an expression of something very different. It's not always the same thing for every person, but it, it could be an expression of pain or an attempt to get pain out. There's even neurotransmitters that are I- impacted there, and it can actually be- bring a pain, pleasure, confusion that brings some pleasure and relief. So there's a lot of different reasons why people engage in non-suicidal self-injury, but it's important to not just assume that it's, if somebody's engaging in cutting behaviors or something like that, yeah. that they are suicidal. They might be, uh, but more often than not, they are not uh, mm-hmm. suicidal. Um, the other thing that I think can help in trying to understand what is going on for a person who might be experiencing uh, suicidality and how we respond to them I try to really stay away from the language or the thought process that that treats a suicidal act or completing suicide as a selfish act. Um, Dave, I think it's important that you talk about this because I've heard it said, you know, that the survivors, the people who obviously, you know, didn't lose their life at the result of this completed suicide, man, how selfish was it for the person who took their life mm. to leave these people with the leftover, yeah. you know? So, yeah. so, so I think I think this is really important. Unpack that for us. Well, I, I would say that the, the only piece of truth behind it is the reality that there is almost always a dramatic negative impact on the people who survive because of that person who has died. Um, but... I really don't... First of all, it it kind of stigmatizes just the fact that someone is suicidal, and they're less likely to seek help, and they're more likely to feel shame and that kind of thing in response to it. And that Uh, puts them in further isolation. Exactly. It isolates them more, and and they feel less able to talk to people about Mm -hmm. it. Uh, But... I don't think I've ever experienced somebody as being intentionally or unintentionally selfish in those thoughts or actions towards suicide. It's quite the opposite. In fact, there are a lot of times when they are under the impression that they are doing a favor to the people around them uh. because I was nothing but a burden. Okay. Uh, and so I, they may say that they will miss me, but they're going to be better off without me. Mm. It is some of the distortion that, that we often have in a suicidal thought process. Um, and often it's not even really about the other individuals. It's about that internal experience of pain or powerlessness, complete lack of control over what feels like an intolerable version of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I, I have heard it said, I have a friend, his name is Tim Tatum, uh, and yeah. he's he's also a licensed mental health practitioner, uh, and, and he does a lot of training in QPR, which is a particular approach to training anybody and everybody in how to prevent suicides. QPR is question, persuade, mm-hmm. refer. Um, and, and Tim says, nobody really wants to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people choose to take that action, it is because they have run out of options in their mind. Right. I would rather do something else. I haven't found any other escape from the pain, mm-hmm. way to gain any sort of control over my life, something like that. And suicide is a last ditch effort for blank, mm-hmm. you know, re- relieving the pain, gaining control, something like that. And it's not a last ditch effort because it's the last thing you're going to do, but because everybody who's suicidal has has attempted to resolve their pain in some other way, and they are of the impression that they are alone, there is no other option. Mm-hmm. So this is not a selfish act. It, it, it is a relatively desperate act in response to pain and sometimes a, a belief that you're doing other people a favor. Mm-hmm. So. I think the, the, the comment, you know, that it's a desperate desperate act, you know, in response to something um, raises in my mind that we need to be incredibly intentional about reaching out to people who we perceive mm-hmm. could be either in isolation or they could be having some kind of... Um, Suicidology, su- suicide ideation, or suicide mm-hmm. ideology, as you call it, you know what? What again? What? What are something that some of the things that we can do as general core population people to say? Um, let me just be quite honest with you for a second on this, Dave. Years ago, um, I mean, I've never attempted suicide. Years ago, man, I was at a, a dark place. I would call it a dark place in my life mm-hmm. uh, before I was married many years ago, and I remember driving down the road and counting telephone poles. Mm-hmm. And contemplating, I think I've told you this story before, and contemplating whether or not I would intentionally strike that pole. You know, yeah. fortunately, none of that happened. I didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. But I sometimes wonder, um, you know, let's say somebody's doing that today. They're driving down the road, and and they're they're in the early entry in their own mind. You know, how can they reach out? And then how can we discern when we need to reach in? Because I think a lot of times. Reaching out is what we expect people to do mm-hmm. when they're anticipating and hopeful that we'll reach in. Yeah, does that make sense? Well, it, it does. And yeah, you know, I I like that you are willing to take a risk and say I have some experience with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly, that's one of the things that we can do. the The idea that you can tell your own story that somehow relates to the experience of somebody who's dealing with suicide sure. can be one of the more healing things for them because it breaks through that myth that says I'm alone. Uh, only people like blank uh, mm-hmm. are, are going to have these thoughts. Um, and, and so, once we get into it with people and we're talking through their suicidality, uh, the extent to which you can find a way to say, I understand. Sometimes mm-hmm. I relate. I've been there. Other times I may not have been there, but I can get it. Mm-hmm. I, I see what it looks like from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we can do that and truly join them in their experience with accurate, empathic, caring understanding, that's what we want to go for. Um, I, I think the way to get there uh, is the, the first thing is we can't expect people to come to us. Uh, we have to be willing to go to them. Now, the good news is statistics would show that the vast majority of people who uh, complete suicide – 
have told at least one person, mm. usually within the two weeks leading up to it. They've told somebody, proactively, maybe reactively. Uh, so the majority of people, it doesn't come out of nowhere. But um, that's not to say we can rely on that because you don't know who they're going to tell and how that person's going to respond. Right. Uh, but I don't wait for that. And again, Tim Tatum, when he does QPR training, uh, he w- one of the slogans that they have used in QPR is "Ask a question, save a life." Sure. Uh, and and I love Tim's approach because I, I would totally agree with it. It's not about knowing the exact technique and wording. Uh, for having a conversation with somebody around this. It's about finding that stance that you have toward others that says, I care enough to notice, and then if I notice, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be intentional. Uh, I'm uh, going to reach over and ask a question. I'm going to ask, how are you doing at a time, in a place, in Mm -hmm. a way that is not just kind of that cultural, hey, how's it going? But... I'm looking at you and I'm wondering truly, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that's somebody that we know or a total stranger, uh, if, if we see something, uh, being willing to ask, being willing to have like, a, to, to be in a situation where you asked and they say they're fine. Like, what if you guessed wrong? I'd rather guess wrong in that direction mm-hmm. than guess wrong in the other direction where, oh, no, they're probably fine, and I was wrong on that one. And, and, and David, how far do you push? Because if you ask me I'm, how I'm doing, man, I'm doing great. You know, I don't have any complaints. I could borrow some from somebody else, you know, but you know mm-hmm. I'm not. Mm-hmm. How far do you push? How do you dig in deeper? Um, and push might not be the right term. How... Um, how how do you you just reach in further with somebody where they're at? So I think there's two levels to that. One is some level of intentionality with the first time you ask. Okay. Um, so if you truly have that caring heart, as opposed to I think I should, uh, if you got that caring heart and you're asking with a tone uh, that says I really do want to know the answer and I've got some time, mm-hmm. um, being intentional about where and when you ask. Uh, if there's other people around, uh, they're more likely to give a socially acceptable answer. Uh, If it's just the two of you, if they don't have any place to be, you don't have any place to be, you're sitting down rather than standing up, uh, not asking via text, but asking in person face to face so you can read their face and they can read your face. These are all things that can increase the likelihood that the person is going to say, that's a serious question that deserves a serious answer. And I'm willing to take the risk to -hmm. disclose this really scary thing to somebody, which I might really want to do, but also be really afraid to do. So the first thing is is kind of planning out, is now the right time and way to ask and finding that right time? I would say if you get that surface level kind of deflected answer, um, it really does depend on the relationship. Mm. Uh, If you've got a close relationship, you probably already know how to say, all right, cut the crap. I I really want the answer. Sometimes we can dig right into that. Mm. Um, I, I would say in general that I encourage people to try to entice rather than force. Okay. Uh, and so what are the ways that I can show that I might be worthwhile or safe for you to give me a solid answer? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also, I recommend using data sometimes, not interpretations, but data. So, you know, you could say, well, 
I'm glad you say you're okay. The reason why I'm asking is you list some data. You've missed class a handful of times. Uh, you appear to be sadder or have lower energy or whatever it is that you're observing. Mm. And that worries me. I care about you and I want to know what that's about. Mm. Um, I try to avoid the interpretations of, I think maybe you're depressed. Yeah. Well, what does depressed mean? And, and how did you draw that conclusion? Mm. It's easy to argue with an interpretation. It's pretty hard to argue with a direct observation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then sometimes you do sense that the person isn't wanting to talk and then you take the risk instead of them. And you say, well, I was asking because I really care about you. Mm-hmm. I wondered, even worried that maybe something's wrong. And I, I'm just doing my best to show you that without judgment, I want to know what's going on so I can journey with you. So if you ever do want to talk to me about something mm-hmm. that isn't going okay, I want to be there for you and mm-hmm. just leave the invitation open. Um, so sometimes we do have to kind of set the boundary there and mm-hmm. say, they're obviously for whatever reason saying, there's an obstacle between me and honest communication with you. And all we can do is try to lower those obstacles and give more opportunity. We can't drag them over that hoop. Sure. So, you know, we've talked about some definitions of this whole um um, construct of, of suicide. We talked about ways in which we can observe someone in need, ways in which we can then step into someone else's life to affect, um, at least begin to care for them so that they can feel like we're caring for them. What about the the families that unfortunately, you know, um, perhaps struggle with this unfortunate reality of guilt when it may or, you know, um, mm-hmm. be self-inflicted, you know? Um, mm-hmm. they They basically... You know, or feeling guilty for something that they didn't really have any any um, ability to change for the long, for the most part. So you're talking about if if somebody in their family has completed suicide, sure. and they're reeling in response. To exactly. That. Um, honestly, and not just reeling, but they're but they're but they're 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 feeling like you know I should have done this differently. I should have done that differently, and they're they're just going back and thinking through every single mm-hmm. experience in the past and how they could have done it differently to have made a different outcome. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it's a question that I want to be sensitive with the answer, uh, because not knowing the individuals that we're talking to, not knowing the circumstances, sure. everybody's going to respond differently and have different needs, uh, when something like that happens in their family. But I will say that in general, there's a couple of, I don't know, rules or ideas that, that I think are, are important there. Yeah. First of all, I think what you just said is normal. I, I think when something very unacceptable feeling happens, a, a trauma, something out of your control, something permanent, a suicide, that kind of thing, of course we're going to ask the questions, what could or should I have done differently? Why right. didn't I see it coming? That kind of thing. Right. That's a normal part of the process. And at the same time, there are people who get stuck there mm-hmm. because the reality is uh, those questions, if we think those questions are going to bring resolution and calm and healing, that they're unlikely to do that. Right. Uh, I think that's just normal human nature where when we experience a disaster or something completely out of our control, we're grasping for control and answers, understanding, prediction, those are kinds of control that mm-hmm. we grasp for. Um, we definitely don't want those kinds of questions to, number one, to shame ourselves. So uh, what could I have done different is what sh- is different from what should I have done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, in my office, I say you know, that should is like a swear word, essentially. It's not that you can't say should, 
but I'm always going to notice, uh, and it's a dangerous word if we're mm. using it in the wrong way, because it's mm. a word we use to compare ourselves to a standard we're probably not living up to and apply shame. Uh, and we don't want a shame response to a family member committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, like allowing ourselves to grieve as well. If we're trying to find all the answers as if that will help, uh, we're at risk of trying to maybe logically work our way through grief, mm-hmm. uh, which has its role, but we need that emotional engagement. We're going to have to grieve. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to be angry, upset, feel out of control, be very uncomfortable with our emotional experience. And those emotions actually help us with the way that we re- recover. So we don't want um, the questioning of like the details and what could I have done differently to obstruct somebody's ability to truly grieve and emote in response to it. Similarly, I wouldn't want people to, on the one hand, our religious, spiritual, Christian faith can be an extremely healing thing for us. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if we use it in certain ways that I would call spiritual bypass, um, we're actually avoiding the process that we need to go through. I think God is our source of healing. At the same time, we often hijack God's words in scripture and certain concepts, and we use them in our own way to try to avoid the emotional process we have to go through. Right. We use certain deliverance language and we we obsess about one particular scripture as if that's supposed to get us through without having to go through that ugly, mm-hmm. emotional, questioning, mm-hmm. anger experience that we might have. So relying on faith is great. Using faith to avoid walking through a valley mm-hmm. is not going to be effective. So. You know, I, I and I'm a you know a person of faith as are you, and and I I think about what you're saying, and sometimes I I look at that and I think, okay, yeah, God can do an immediate healing and surgery in my heart, unlike anybody else, right? But isn't it sometimes important that we recognize, or is it sometimes important? Or let me back up. My perception is sometimes it <laughs> might seem that it is valuable for me to walk through some of the difficulty for the benefit of those that are walking alongside me. Hmm. So you've got, yeah. you know, I could add theologian to your name on the other side of psychologist because you've got a theory or an idea or an understanding from the book of Job that kind of might help mm-hmm. might help us to really understand that this walking together business is important even if it's to prevent me from struggling more or attempting, or mm-hmm. even if it's to help me after I lost someone who was, um, you know, complete in their attempt. Yeah. So you're right. We're kind of getting into theology there. And um, we both study theology and, and our faith is important to us, but I want to respect other people's theology as well. I, let me put my perspective out there on a couple of these things. Yeah, you um, can. You got the mic. Yeah. So... <laughs> First of all, uh, it does get into those questions of theodicy, so to speak. How does a loving and powerful God coexist with the suffering in the world? Uh, And And we won't answer that. Even if we have good theological answers, let's remember that like relationally and experientially, sometimes that just helps us understand. It doesn't help us be in any less pain as we're suffering. Um, and you know, whether it's the book of Job or elsewhere, we have a lot of sources for trying to figure out what's, what does suffering mean? Where is it coming from? Where is God's role in it? Uh, for me personally, um, I, I tend to be wary when 
people are saying, well, God put this in my life so that he can use it. Um, you get into questions of whether God is uh, creating, allowing evil, that kind of thing. I, I don't know exactly what the right theology might be on that. But what I am confident in is God can use any circumstance, sure. as fallen, sinful, devastating as it is, uh, for his purposes, uh, in someone else's life, in your life, that kind of thing. And, and for me, it doesn't necessarily redeem the experience. Mm. Uh, it is still an evil, awful, ugly, sinful thing that has happened. And maybe we take the word sin out because uh, we don't apply a shame. I don't know. Uh, but it's a bad thing that God can use. I, I think of at the end of Genesis, uh, I think it's in the beginning of Genesis 50 when Joseph is talking with his brothers. Uh, I think there's a, it's a little bit allegorical there. He, he tells them. And I think we can look at other experiences too. You know, what you meant for evil, God sure. has intended or can use, can use. will use for mm-hmm. good and for the saving of many people mm-hmm. even. Um, and so James 1 is really helpful for me uh, with that as well. Just the idea that suffering occurs and maybe the goal isn't to pray to God that, that we can get out of it, but what we can get out of it. Mm. So not trying to escape the suffering, but what can we learn through the suffering? How can we grow? How can we accomplish God's will through the suffering that uh, may be not the result of God uh bringing it into our lives at all, but fallenness, uh, bringing it into our lives. Job 2, for me, is the place that I find my best foundation for what are we supposed to do in response to other people's suffering. Okay. Uh, and we're not talking about the part where Job and his wife are having a conversation. She says, curse God and die. Like That's fun to read and all, but it's the part <laughs> right after that. It, <laughs> to paraphrase, this guy, that guy, and the other guy, uh, they hear that Job is suffering, and number one, they uh, they come to agreement that they are going to go to Job. Mm-hmm. I, I like that they go to him rather than waiting for Job to kind of reach out. Right. Uh, and then they go to Job, they see Job and what pathetic state he is in, and it breaks their heart, and they're pouring dust on their heads and tearing their clothes and crying. It, it's that true empathic joining, emotional joining. Mm-hmm. And, and then it says... And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, again, joining. And are we ready to join and journey, like for a longer period of time? Um, If we're going to ask people, are you dealing with suicidal thoughts? Have you had thoughts about killing yourself? Are you doing okay? Are you depressed? Something like that. When we get an answer that, yes, I'm dealing with something like that, how far are we willing to walk with them? Mm -hmm. Uh, Can we go beyond... I'm sorry to hear that. I'm going to pray for you. And we walk away and go to our next class or whatever it is. Uh, what is our role in journeying with them? Job's friends sit with him for seven days and seven nights. Uh, and then it says, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that that's because they were so astounded and overwhelmed by it that they were speechless. I like to think that it's because they knew better. Mm-hmm. than to respond to that pain with, but let me tell you why it happened and, and how to get out of it. They, they knew better that like maybe what we're supposed to do when we join people first is just shut up and listen. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the same guys for the remainder of Job, they get uncomfortable, <laughs> they get squirmy, and they get a little start <laughs> trying to give answers. And those answers are wrong yeah. and therefore very painful. Sure. Um, sure. I, I also went through a depression in my life. There were 
passive, like low-level suicidal thoughts in it, but it was a long-term depression. And I remember one of my friends, his name was John, and John invited me to lunch. I was in college to lunch Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the cafeteria. And, you know, 50% of the time I slept through it because I was depressed or I just bailed on him. But he kept asking and he kept asking. Mm -hmm. And when I did show up, he would sit there and just listen and let me talk and vent and emote and whatever for 45 minutes, an hour and a half until they closed the cafeteria, whatever it was. And he did that for eight months. And that guy kept me alive. He was Christ to me. Mm In a time when I wasn't even ready to know that I was depressed, I was unwilling to get therapy and help. He was one part of my journey through depression. He was one of the first early people who actually listened and didn't judge. Mm -hmm. He expressed worry in a very different way than some other people in my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I am eternally grateful to him for that. I don't know where I'd be if it wasn't for him sustaining me through that. Well, I want to say thank you, John, because um, I'm glad you're around, Dave. That's I'm a, glad that's I'm a around too. Benefit for all of us. I had so. a wonderful moment, like 15 years later, uh, tracking him down and sending him an email and yeah. saying, "You have been Christ to me. I am a licensed psychologist now. I'm doing this work and I'm helping sure. people out. And I tell your part of my story." Hmm. And so it, it was a wonderful moment. And I think I think that's important for us. You and I share a uh, a hobby. You know, we're both divers, and mm-hmm. um, you know, when you're diving, the reality is you could run out of air, and so you always depend on um, you know your 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 knowledge and your training and the buddy breathing, which is a a way to share my air with you if you run out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I I think about that 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 imagery, and I, I paint that picture for just a minute because I, I want people to understand that. That preparation is equally as important as the actual act of application. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in these last few minutes of this episode, what are some ways that people listening today can prepare themselves? Where can they get knowledge about suicide? You know, I just, I'm, I'm in a 22 for 22 deal right now where I'm doing 22 push-ups for 22 days to raise awareness for combat veteran suicide. As a Marine Corps vet, that's particularly important to me. And I recognize that, you know, statistics will say that 22 um, vets a day lose their life, you know, mm-hmm. to um, to suicide. And, and so what are some real ways that we can start buddy breathing and prepare ourselves mm-hmm in case that we happen to be given the opportunity and encounter to make impact in somebody else's life? Well, I think first uh, is easy uh, because it's simple, uh, but not necessarily something everybody's done. You, you have to have the mindset that this is something that I am going to prepare for, that I do care about. I, I think a lot of times uh, in life, we don't prepare for things, mm-hmm. but instead, we're, we're aware that they exist. Uh, but it's only when we see somebody struggling with suicidality or whatever it is that we first start to say, "Hey, I ought to become enough of an expert on that that, that I know what to do." Mm-hmm. So uh, now, honestly, we're, we're at the end uh, of this podcast, and so I would imagine most of the people who have listened this far, mm-hmm. they already care yeah. enough. I, I think the trick is, is the people who don't click on this or they heard the first two minutes and they're done. Like, are those people aware enough that it's a topic worth caring about? There's a lot of topics worth caring about, but this is a topic worth caring about. But once you've got that and you kind of work out, am I willing to intervene 
if I'm afraid that that's something that's going on for somebody. Like I said before, with QPR and Tim Tatum, I think the first thing is not having the perfect response, but having that attitude of, I am willing to risk the discomfort, take the risk and ask somebody, how are you doing? And then am I willing to actually hear the response and journey with them afterward in, mm-hmm. instead of just knowing and then walking away? Um there are a lot of places that you can turn to try to figure out more uh, about who is more likely to run into suicidality. What do you do in response to suicidality? I'll give a couple of links, phone numbers, that kind of thing. And we'll put um, them in the show notes as well. I, so we'll make them available. I do want to talk a little bit more about, um, yeah, I, I gave the idea that there are reasons behind suicidality. And for those of us who aren't suicidal in the moment or never have been, I, I think curiosity is the antidote to judgment. And if you want to follow what I've said before, where like we don't want to be judgmental toward people being in a place that obviously has distortions built into it. Right. Depression and suicide, they they have distortions built in where they think the negative is everything. They think it's going to be forever. Those kinds of things. The distortion is there and there's a temptation to challenge. But a lot of times we challenge because we're not comfortable sitting with the ugly that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I... I I would encourage people to think about curiosity being the antidote to judgment. Can I wonder how it makes sense to that person that suicide is an option? You're not agreeing with it. Uh, There's another myth out there that if I were to ask a person a question about suicidality, I plant the idea. Mm. just doesn't happen. Um, And so when we ask the question, if they say yes, it's okay, it's best if you say, tell me more about it, I want to understand where it's coming from and, and why that's an option for you, uh, you're not encouraging them to stay in that suicidal place. Mm-hmm. But but instead, you're trying to understand how and why they got there, which is the only way you're going to have much chance of understanding what an alternative yeah. might be for them, what the resource they, they need is that's going to replace suicidality with whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, so... As hard as it is, not trying to give people advice, but instead trying to listen and truly understand. I think it's the most important thing we can do. I even do it with scripture. I am less likely to give somebody, at least first, a scripture about hope and joy in heaven or something like that. I'm more likely to try to point to a place in scripture where, (coughs) excuse me, where God or a faithful person in the Old or New Testament like has seen or experienced or shown, like, I get it. I understand. So 1 Kings 19 mm-hmm. is a passage that I go to. Elijah has had a really positive experience with you know the prophets of Baal and God brings down the fire on the altar and everything. Very shortly thereafter, he's running for his life. He ends up in the desert and he says, God, take me now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all against me. There's no one with me. Take my life. I like to show that scripture right? because that's not what we think of when we think of Elijah. We think of Elijah as this very godly prophet. And so to show that somebody who's listed in Hebrews as one of the faithful was dealing with that yeah. as well, uh, I think that's a really powerful thing. Um, the rest of that passage is really interesting, too. Sure. God doesn't take his life, but God also doesn't just give him a really quick answer. God mm-hmm. takes him on a journey through the desert, and he's listening for God's voice in the fire and the earthquake and all that. And then eventually, God does say, 
Okay, I get it. Let me give you answers. There are 7,000 who do follow and believe. <laughs> yeah, I guess you are old enough. Right. Let's let you retire and we'll go find Elisha. Right. And then ironically, Elijah's the only guy who never died. Yeah. Chariots of fire. <laughs> uh, so now you do have to be careful with some of the ones that are like theologically more difficult to yeah. interpret. Job and Ecclesiastes, those can be a mess. Yeah. But the, the whole idea that God understands where people are at. And if we can find scripture or concepts that show that God and holy people can understand to join people before we try to correct or bring them out, sure. that kind of thing, that'd sure. be helpful. More concretely, um, you know, it, we, we can link stuff, but there's Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, locally here in Bradley County, uh, there is a phone number for crisis response team that you can call, and they will come to a location where somebody is, mm -hmm. and they will come assess the person right then and there yeah. for free. Um, there's all kinds of statistics you can find on NIMH, uh, National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, QPR is a training program. There are crisis phone chat lines, uh, text lines, and there's actually something exciting that's just coming out now. You know, we have the number 911 yeah. that we can dial for emergencies. They have now approved, I think it was the federal government, you know, Congress has approved a three digit number for a suicide hotline, mm -hmm. essentially. Uh, it has not gone live yet. And so at this point, if you dial it, it is not going to be a resource. But they've approved the number 988 okay. to be what you dial. So you don't have to remember, you know, 1-800-472-something-something. Sure. Yeah, just 988. And, and you get connected to somebody who can do that kind Good of stuff. crisis response when that gets set up. Yeah. Um, also locally, I mean, sometimes people do need to go to the hospital. Sometimes people need therapy and medication and, you know, find what the resources are. Locally, we do have an inpatient psychiatric wing to the hospital here. And in fact, in Chattanooga, there is a place that people can go completely free of charge as long as it's voluntary, mm -hmm. uh, the Joe Johnson Crisis Stabilization Unit. Right. Um, and usually that crisis response team I was talking about, they assess somebody and they, they kind of help find and make sure there's a bed there for them. Them mm -hmm. and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a place where you don't have to worry about the cost. Mm -hmm. um, and they can go there for free for psychiatric stabilization and safety monitoring and that mm -hmm. kind of thing for a handful of days. So at the end of the day, there are resources where people can become better equipped to know how to care for other people who they are concerned mm -hmm. about. Yeah. So good deal. And, and Closing I, thoughts, Dave. Closing thoughts. Final thoughts to our audience today on, uh, on this whole idea. I think we have to work together as a community. Um, I think that if we all care enough to do a little bit of research, put our hearts in the right place, be willing to ask questions, be willing to join and journey with people, um, there's a whole lot less people who are going to die by suicide. There's a whole lot less people who are going to need to come to my counseling center. And there's a whole lot more people who do need therapy, medication, hospitalization that are going to get it because mm -hmm. you're going to help bridge them to the professional care they need if that's what they need. Uh, and so it's not... Am I a psychologist or not? Uh, it's am I invested in the mental health of our community and those around us? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, can can I be helping the person alongside the road, whether I know them very well or whether it's a total stranger? Um, and so I, I hope that people will join with me. We, we get professionals and non-professionals alike in trying to provide mm -hmm. care for each other. Uh, sometimes you'll be the person receiving care. Sometimes you'll be the person who is providing care. Mm -hmm. um, 
for those of you out there who are wrestling with hopelessness and suicidality, look at the moments throughout this podcast that might have been speaking to you as well. We were mostly talking to other people about you, perhaps, but we're trying to help them understand what it is that you're going through. Uh, Maybe this will help you understand what you're going through a little bit and that there are people who care, that there is something outside of the suicidality that you're experiencing uh, and that you're not alone. Uh, Unfortunately, you're not alone. You're not the only person who's ever been through this. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, you're not alone that there are other people who have survived this uh, who want to help. Yeah. Speaking of that, our um, episode that's coming out on the first Friday of October is going to be with Daryl Stinson, who is um, a survivor who attempted suicide and a collegiate athlete and leads a fantastic organization out of Atlanta, Georgia. You don't want to miss that episode. Dave, it's been so glad to have you here with us today on Surfcast. I really appreciate your time, okay? You bet. You got it. Thanks. Hey, guys, as always, remember, and I tell you, every time we close out a Surfcast episode, you're made for more. You're made to make impact in somebody else's life. I hope that you'll watch this or listen to it, whichever that you're doing. Um, If you're listening to us, you can grab this on my YouTube channel, um, DR William Lamb. It'll be available there. You can pick it up there. And um, if you're watching this, share it with somebody else. Um, Most importantly is look around you, reach out, make a difference in somebody else's life. Because as we have all um, received, I also believe that the giver has deposited within us the capacity to care to make a difference. So, uh, hey guys, thanks as always. Thanks. And as always, um, we just appreciate you taking time to listen to us today. All right. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to Surfcast with Dr. William Lamb. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Surfcast to stay updated on special guests and future episodes.